0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today, Steve Malanga, the senior editor of City Journal, a frequent guest on this show, and the George M. Yeager Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Steve is the author, most recently, of Wind Flags Waved. It's a piece that's up now as part of our week-long series on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. On today's episode, we'll talk about September 11th its fallout, and its enduring significance. Steve, as always, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Now, your article really starts off by talking about how the attacks marked not just the start of a, a, a kind of new American era, but the end of an old one, an America where uh, bipartisanship was still possible, uh, where public servants, uh, especially police, could be viewed as heroes, not villains. And that the country was able during that period, as as both of us remember well, to rally together against a common enemy around a common cause. So what has changed between now and then? it It seems a very different landscape today, and were the seeds of today's uh, divisive country visible at all in the aftermath of nine eleven?,
1: uh, yes, they were actually visible um, if you looked closely. Uh, although I think they were marginalized. I think the seeds were, we could actually see in the rise of a kind of far-left anti-Americanism in uh, universities going you know back, especially to the 90s and the late 1980s, uh, which was almost a hangover from the 60s and 70s. Uh, but, w- but we saw it after 9-11, although it was, it was very marginal and unpopular. In fact, City Journal ran an article by uh, Harry Stein and Kay Stein, uh, uh, Heimowitz About the reaction on campuses, which was very different from the reaction across much of America, there were, I guess, maybe two components of this. One was a blame America; it was our fault. The terrorists attacked us, and the other was a kind of, I don't know, New Agey. You know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't seek retribution anyway because it just it leads to a downward spiral. You know, discounting the idea that we that we needed to uh, protect ourselves. So uh, you saw that there, and and also in the maybe in the year or so after uh, 9-11, you began to see it in very progressive cities. Again, this included mostly university cities and maybe some uh, some kind of left-leaning cities. Uh, San Francisco, uh, the, yeah, Berkeley. Yeah, yeah, where they began to um, pass, uh, the city councils there began to pass resolutions uh, against the war on terror uh, saying that they were going to refuse to allow their police officers and their public servants to cooperate with that. Again, this was this was fairly marginal. I mean, there were healthy debates going on about things, certainly like about whether uh, uh, we should attack Iraq. But those debates, they were, they were a, a kind of form of anti-Americanism. So you saw it, but it was extremely marginalized. I think even in City Journal, we used a very dismissive headline about what was going on in the campuses. But 20 years later, the people who were the students of those uh, professors and were perhaps t- uh, taking place, uh, taking part in those those uh, protests, they're now kind of grown up, and they're they're maybe even parts of the new progressive movement w- in which this kind of um, blame America first has become, you know, uh, prevalent essentially. So yes, we did. We, we could see it there in retrospect, although it seemed marginalized at the time.
0: Let's uh, look at New York a bit. Really, this whole era has been marked by three major crises, starting with 9-11, then we had the financial crisis, and now, uh, most recently, of course, the pandemic. Uh, but how did the 9-11 attacks change the city, in your view? Its, it's infrastructure, the way it went about security. Uh, basically the the character of the city.
1: Well, one thing that I argue is that it changed it much less than we thought it was. the the um, The outlook for the city in the aftermath was uh, was, as you can imagine, a lot of it was doom and gloom, and uh, some of it seemed warranted. Certainly, you know, there were reports in newspapers of um, uh, uh, firms and big companies in New York now seeking space outside the city so that they wouldn't be a target. Um, I think there are a couple of things. First of all. One of the biggest changes which people would perhaps notice was in the NYPD and the whole the way the city decided to take control of its own security. Um, What people don't many people don't remember unless they've read the 9-11 commission report or books like the Looming Tower is that 9-11 was a giant failure of our security apparatus. I know that might sound familiar to people and it is distressing that 20 years later we've seen something similar in Afghanistan. But there were many, many warnings about what was about to happen, including from the foreign security services. In the aftermath of 9-11, the NYPD, which is a very big organization, decided it was going to essentially put, you know, put in place its own security apparatus. And they were going to send out their people around the world to make contact with foreign security um, uh, agencies because they felt they could no longer trust the FBI and the CIA. Uh, and um, we have documented in a series of stories since then, including some by, for instance, Judy Miller, uh, that, um, that that one could look look up, called the Target New York," which is on our website. Uh, we have documented the way that the NYPD have foiled a number of budding terrorist attacks. So we that it's been hard to to stop the lone wolves, like the. The fellow who who drove a truck through Chelsea in Manhattan several years ago, but 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 the number of um, terrorist attacks that have been foiled, most people don't understand exactly how many their, uh, plots uh, uh, we've effectively stopped, and, and the NYPD has had a hand in that. Uh, if you talk about the the infrastructure of New York City, the thing is, certainly with regard, regard to 9-11, the infrastructure we talk about is lower Manhattan, and specifically the World Trade Center. And their government was largely in charge of that. And uh, that re- that represents, I think, one of the biggest failures of 9-11. Um, the uh, the site down there and the rebuilding of the site down there got caught up in all kinds of political agendas. Uh, there was a movement to ha- have nothing rebuilt there at all, to make it just one giant memorial. The idea that we would rebuild towers there and have commerce there seemed to some people almost sacrilegious. This went on for a very long time uh, until it, it almost reached a sense of paralysis. And ironically, because of that, what we wound up with down there were our series of you know large office towers again, and a, and a return to the. The idea of lower Manhattan as a center of commerce but that almost happened by default
0: because the um, and and a significant financial cost right yes yes projects that uh, there was just a a insane amount of money that wound up getting spent
1: right right and well and and you're referring particularly to the um, to the path center there the the infamous oculus which uh, was tat was uh, I mean it's essentially a um, a train station a subway station and the original design was for a $500 million station. It actually wound up costing a billion dollars, and uh, put drove the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey even further and further in, into debt. And that was a a large boondoggle. But but beyond that, what happened was that Larry Silverstein, who had been the private developer that was running, managing the World Trade Center, continued to push for years and years for. Uh, To rebuild, And finally, I think just out of a sense of exhaustion, you know, he pushed forward and we actually wound up with a series of towers. One of the reasons why is because one of the buildings that fell on that day was Seven World Trade Center, which wasn't even part of the footprint that the government controlled there. It was something that Larry himself owned. And because the government didn't control that, he rebuilt that quickly. And that stood almost in stark contrast to what was happening uh, downtown. Uh, to, to, to the rest of the site, and so eventually we wound up with something. Uh, but again, this was a kind of classic government failure. Fortunately, again, that was that was the part of New York, the only part of New York that was impacted, if you will, directly by 9/11. The rest of the city, despite all the fears about how it, you know it would never recover and uh, it, it was a target, and therefore people wouldn't invest in it. After uh, people got back to work and got back to business, uh, the rest of the city continued the expansion that it had begun in the mid '90s, and actually in the last 20 years, up until the point of COVID, uh, was um, grew into a way, uh, 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 went through a whole new series of growth. Um, you know, as the, basically the city just got back to work again, uh, and mm-hmm. that was something that was outside the purview of government, except to the extent that government, you know, controls. Or, or, or regulates any kind of private development, and that I think is maybe the most encouraging thing about the af- aftermath of nine eleven. Most
0: of the grim prediction, predictions turned out not to be true. Now uh, you, you mentioned, of course, is Islamist terrorism uh, in this context. It's it's something we've covered extensively in the magazine over the years, but I have to say uh, we've covered it less uh, of late. Um, you know, in the two thousands, with the memory of nine eleven recent and you had the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan ongoing. Uh, it was hard not to think about Islamist terrorism, and then in the last decade, in the 2010s, there were these spate of attacks which we saw uh, by ISIS in in Europe, or or at least uh, motivated by ISIS, and that of course kept kept uh, Islamist terrorism uh, in in our minds as well. But of late, you know, less so. Uh, the, the grandiose talk of a clash of civilizations that we heard so much about after 9-11, uh, you know, we, we, we don't hear as much about that anymore. Uh, but we've just seen Afghanistan fall back into the hands of the Taliban after two decades uh, with a very uh, a shambolic retreat on the part of the U.S. Uh, you know, without asking you, Steve, to prognosticate on on this um you know, isn't it possible we we may have overcorrected from our earlier focus on on Islamist uh, terrorism and that now we're we're perhaps not thinking about it enough?
1: Well, let me give you the optimist take on that. The optimistic take is that uh, we succeeded to a very large degree, and certainly for someone who remembers the fears, who remembers walking the streets of Manhattan and wondering what was going to happen next, you know, what was waiting to happen. Um, we succeeded... Uh, so well that it began to fade from people's memory, and more importantly than that, it's been 20 years. We have a whole generation of people coming forward, living in places like New York, who didn't experience this. That's actually a success, and it's a kind of it's a kind of a inevitability. Um, the uh, the analogy that I have, I think, think is also with the whole defund the police movement right now. It's the same thing that the people behind many of the people behind it, the younger people behind it. Uh, never, have never, never had experienced experienced. Yeah, 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 right. the yeah. the social disorder of the uh, uh, that we saw in the 70s and the 80s and uh, uh, so they're they're quick to to, to you know offer um, solutions if you will to to current problems that that might actually make them worse. I think there's a bit of that in in what you're describing. Um, I, in fact, I'll give you an anecdote that I remember uh, after 9/11, uh, George Bush as president walked into a meeting of the military leaders and uh, and intelligence people and he said he said eventually the american people are going to forget about this they're going to move on it's up to us not to forget the most distressing thing is unfortunately i do think our leaders have forgotten what we have seen in in afghanistan is an example of how rather than reforming uh, our security apparatus you know, rather than you know understanding where the focus needs to be we have, we have forfeited that over the last 20 years. And getting that back
0: is hard. Sure. Um, you know, to, to come back to this specific piece you, you've written, When Flags Waved and the Question of Patriotism, uh, you know, how might we again foster the kind of uh, common cause that uh, was flourishing in the weeks and, and really months after the attacks? Um, you know, we don't want to bank on a disaster or hope for a disaster to, to bring us together again, that would be quite perverse. So, you know, is there a way to cultivate this spirit, uh, this, this shared sense of purpose again in America, which, as we noted earlier, is is very divided these days?
1: Well, you know, first of all, you're absolutely right that it does seem perverse. And it's not only in our era, and it wasn't certainly, not, it, not, it wasn't only after 9-11 that Essentially, it's when things look bleakest that people actually are most willing to seek reform. Uh, and uh, that almost seems inevitable. You know, there's this phrase that actually goes back to John Adams, which is the worst, the better. He, uh, right before the American Revolution, in a letter, he, he was actually telling people, um, you know, it, the worse things seem, the better our odds are of, of creating something new out of this. Um, so that's, that's a kind of a, 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 an historical pattern. What I would say is different right now is that many of the issues we confront right now, we did confront starting with the 60s and the 70s, and we dug our way out of them. Everything from policing to foreign policy, you know, and we dug our way out of them. As a result of that, we have, a, we have a roadmap, if you will. In the 60s and the 70s, we did have a roadmap, let's say, for crime. But we and they made a lot of mistakes as a result. But we have roadmaps now, and it's up to those of us who've written about and talked about and understand those roadmaps to keep emphasizing them. And I think we're already seeing. If you think of some of the things that are going on, let's say, for instance, something that City Journal is very close to the reaction against critical race theory. I think we are seeing around America people are understanding what some of this kind of far left progressivism that we're confronting actually amounts to. And they're they're willing to stand up and say this is not what we bargained for, and um, and so I think that that the best opportunity right now is that much of a lot of what ails us is part of something that uh, we understand the solutions to because we've seen them already, and I think we need to continue to emphasize you know uh, how we get, how we have uh, changed and saved ourselves before. Um, and uh, and and that there is a kind of that there is a roadmap out there. So I think that'll be crucial for the next coming
0: years. Thanks very much, Steve. Uh, this piece that he has just written—it's part of our week-long series uh, on 9/11. It's called "Wind Flags Waved." Uh, you can find that and uh, Steve's other work on the City Journal website. We'll link to his author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal, and on Instagram at Journal underscore mi. Uh, As I always note, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Steve Malanga, always uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks again, uh, and uh, have a good afternoon. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.